Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. If you want a better tomorrow, start heading for it today with Toyota's incredible range of self-charging hybrid electric cars, including the eye-catching CHR and the RAV4. With contributions of up to €3,000, join the thousands of hybrid drivers who have made Toyota Ireland's best-selling car brand in 2021. Contact your dealer or try out our virtual tools at toyota.ie and start your electric journey today. Toyota, built for a better world. Terms and conditions apply. Claim applies up to March 2021. And welcome to Pod's Own Country, the Yorkshire Post Political Podcast. I'm Yuri Scott, and Rob Parsons is with me today as well. Hi, Rob. Morning, Joey. How's it going? It's okay, thank you. I'm not too bad. Um, look, later on, I'm going to be speaking to um Fabian Hamilton, one of our Leeds uh, Labour MPs, but he's also got a position uh, in the Shadow Cabinet, which is peace and disarmament, which is quite interesting, actually, because there isn't an equivalent in government but he thinks it's more important than ever so we'll we'll kind of we'll hear from him in a minute it but let's chat about some other stuff first Rob's been a grim blooming week hasn't it on coronavirus it has i mean uh the big overriding uh headline that's been dominating is this 100,000 uh figure for deaths in, a, across the country i mean i think that the, the likely death toll is probably already a fair bit higher than that uh, and it's mm. as Boris Johnson said in his press conference where he, he he seemed you know quite crestfallen to be delivering this news you can't really compute a figure like that because uh, it's so so huge and you know at a more local level uh Bradford council announced that their death toll for their their district had, had gone past uh the 1000 mark and they'd um marked the somber occasion by uh laying a thousand candles uh in one of their civic buildings and uh, just seeing the video of that and you know even just in bradford how many lives have been lost linked with covid is is, is uh you know it hits hits you quite hard and i, I think it's uh yeah that just the sheer numbers involved are, are quite staggering really it was really poignant that um that thing in bradford i saw the photos as well and yeah like you say it was a thousand uh hitting, hitting a thousand which you know, in obviously the grand scheme where we're talking about uh, 100,000 deaths seems not as many, but that's still a thousand families, you know, heartbroken in Bradford alone. And um, we know it's one of the areas that's been heaviest hit. It was under restrictions um, for a long time. And there's been a bit more kind of discussion this week about how we're going to get out of of the kind of, well, out of the pandemic, out of these lockdowns. And the Prime Minister's promised he's going to 
set out a plan by the end of February and uh, hopefully start opening schools from the 8th of March. But, you know, the way out is still really this vaccines thing. But we've had a bit of a back and forward about who's getting what on the vaccine front. I mean, do you want to explain what's been going on there, Rob? Because it's it's a bit confusing. I'm still a bit confused about it, if I'm honest. It, 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 is, it is confusing. I mean, I guess the, 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 the thing to say at the outset is that the, the vaccine rollout in across the UK is going very well the vaccine has been uh, you know in terms of the number of people per head of population who have been vaccinated or had their first dose so far uh the uk is is pretty much uh is is behind only israel i think and maybe one other countries and and you know if you compare it to what's going on in the european union and the fact that they're you know squabbling uh, they're squabbling with uh, with astrazeneca over getting their supplies out so i guess anything that is going on regionally has to be set in that context but we've mm. it, it, readers may have uh, picked up uh, in the last few days that there's been a quite a controversy over the extent to which uh, vaccine supplies to our region and to other regions of the UK which are doing really well with their vaccine rollout is being uh, targeted elsewhere in an effort to help uh, areas like London and the southwest catch up and we're, we're getting very contradictory messages uh on on this um matt hancock said in the in the commons uh last week that um you know it was important to be fair to other areas of the country and this was in response to a story in the the health service journal which suggested that uh, supplies of the vaccine to gp practices in yorkshire was going to be uh, halved um and a, a, a little later a uh, a senior nhs england person who represents uh, primary care basically confirmed the same thing that uh, that vaccine supplies were being uh, at least temporarily diverted from Yorkshire to other parts of the country but uh, this prompted quite a reaction from uh, certain certain parties and the vaccines minister Nadim Zahari yeah. yeah so he said didn't he that the proportion of vaccines that Yorkshire will get week on week would be the same and um MPs, it's fair to say from all parties, they're all in this briefing, were told the same and given given some figures. Um, and, you know, like you say, it's it's fair to say the vaccine rollout's going well. I saw some statistics uh, that said last weekend, the weekend just gone, of all the vaccines given worldwide uh, over that weekend, 17% were administered in the UK. So it is going really well. But I think this um, Lack of clarity and contradiction is a bit worrying. We're seeing it in the Northwest now as well. You know, there's no suggestion that people won't get their jabs, that vulnerable people won't get, you know, their inoculations. They absolutely will. But there is definitely some confusion over what's happening. And I mean, my personal opinion, Rob, is that it's a fair enough policy that if you've got to get through all the all the vulnerable people, sorry, by a certain date, and some areas have done well and some haven't, that you need to divert some supply. I think that's absolutely fair enough, to be honest, and can be a policy that can be defended. But it's the contradiction, really, that's driving us mad at the moment, isn't it? Some clarity would be nice. Yes, consistency of message uh, is, is, is is very important. And I think it, you know, it, it has, uh, the lack of clarity has led to some anxiety amongst people who, who think, oh, maybe I'm not going to get my vaccine. Or I've had a phone call or a letter saying, come for my appointment, but maybe when I get there, there's not going to be any vaccine for me, which, you know, we, we want to reassure people that that isn't the case. If you've been told, come in and get your vaccine, you should do that. It's there for you. And in Yorkshire and in other parts of the country, 
um, the the aim, which I think we're still on target for, is to vaccinate, get the first dose out to all these top four groups by the middle of February. But it's just the the distribution of it, at least for the next couple of weeks, is going to be varied a little to uh, so that everywhere in the country is able to hit that target. Yeah, absolutely. Like you say, it's just a bit confusing about how places can be targeted and prioritised, but yet the limited supply elsewhere can stay the same. But we'll keep pushing for an explanation, I am I am sure. Um, I know you've been stupidly busy this week, like I have as well, but um, there's some exciting news, isn't there, on a, on a mass transit system for Leeds, which I believe has been long coming, hasn't it? It has indeed. It's um, so it almost feels a bit weird to be talking about uh, you know transport and and uh, how people get around when no one is getting around. I, as as I said last week, barely leave my house uh, the, these days. But <laughs> the pre-pandemic, one of the big uh, promises that Boris Johnson made, which people uh, around here are holding him to, was uh, he he said. Uh, not long after the election, that he wanted to um, remedy the scandal that Leeds should be the largest city in Western Europe without light rail or a metro, uh, and indeed that 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 is that is the case. Um, if you look around the country, Manchester, Birmingham, London, Sheffield, all these places have mass transit systems of different different types. Uh, you know, mm. to move people around in large in large numbers and Leeds and West York, the wider West Yorkshire County doesn't have that. Um there was the, there's been various attempts to to get one and the most recent in 2016 there was plans that progressed quite far to build a a, a trolleybus network in Leeds, but uh the, the government eventually um rejected that um and uh, after a report which said the scheme wasn't in the public interest so th- there's been quite a lot of anticipation as to how this uh situation might be uh, remedied and i think part of what is allowing things to potentially get better is the fact that as of may west yorkshire should have a uh, a mayor a metro mayor with uh, mm, yeah. with extra powers and devolved budgets from uh, the government and areas which have metro mayors are mu- find it much easier to get the funding they need for these kind of projects and so it was that this week uh, west yorkshire combined authority unveiled its um what's it's uh, the connectivity infrastructure plan and mass transit vision 2040 which is oh what a sexy title i know sexy 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 <laughs> it gets the pulse racing doesn't it uh but actually it is it is very important because it, it yeah. uh, at its heart it's how sets out how all the different types of transport in west yorkshire are going to connect with each other in in the years to come you know when people start leaving their homes again and wanting to get to work uh, or get to wherever they need to go how that's going to work and the hope is that a mass transit system of some kind will form uh the heart form the heart of that and there's, there's not a huge amount of flesh on the bones at the moment there's a there's a map which uh shows where this mass transit system might go to and the various stops and interchanges and uh, a document setting up what types of technology might be used so you might have a sort of tram train like you have in uh south yorkshire or light rail like in birmingham or or something called ultra light rail which uh, doesn't actually exist in this country at the moment but apparently uh coventry is uh is is pioneering it so that's that's another option um but essentially the people the combined authority in west yorkshire want to want to know what people living locally think about this what what 
what they think uh, should sh- it, it should be. And they're going to put all this together into a, an outline business case to be submitted to the government uh, by next year. And the aim is that uh, they'll be able to share some of this 4.2 billion uh, strategic transport fund that the government has set aside um, at, at the last budget um, for big projects like this. But I mean, I, I suspect uh, four point, even this whole 4.2 billion pounds, which is for the whole country, I, I think the overall cost of this scheme would be more than that. So I guess the question is, how how is it going to be paid for? Um, you know, will will local taxpayers have to uh, make a contribution? Will private enterprise have to pay for some of it? Like, how where's the money going to come from, and what form will it take? So there's a, a lot of questions still to be answered. But you know, it's a an encouraging uh, encouraging start, and the fact that this you know is on the radar, I think, gives some people uh, cause for cause for hope. But you say about questions to be answered. I've got one that you didn't answer there. What happened to the idea of the hyperloop? <laughs> well, well, I mean, uh, maybe a hyperloop will will form some part of it. I suspect not, because I think uh, a hyperloop is really for getting people very quickly, uh, as I understand it, from one place to another. I think um, it was a couple of years ago that Chris Grayling, ex-transport secretary, was asked about this at an event in Leeds, and he suggested uh, that maybe you could have a hyperloop from Leeds city centre to the airport. Like, it's not it wouldn't form part of a network, but it's very quick at getting people from one place to another. But uh, I don't know. Perhaps we could we could try and get Elon Musk on the uh, on the pod, and he could maybe make a pitch to West Yorkshire leaders for getting a, a hyperloop part of the part of the scheme. Uh, for listeners not in on our little uh, inside joke, there it has been suggested that a hyperloop could be the um, the solution to West Yorkshire's mass uh, kind of transit problem, and it's a very futuristic kind of suspended pod, super fast kind of situation, which um, was always a bit pie in the sky, to be honest. But I'm sure we'll get something of uh, of equal quality and um, impressiveness in the next few years. Yes. <laughs> Uh, right. Uh, thanks, Rob. Let's have a listen to what Fabian Hamilton um, has to say, and we'll be back with you in a bit. So this week I'm joined by um, Fabian Hamilton, who has been the MP for Leeds North East since 1997. Fabian, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? It's a pleasure. Well, uh, as well as uh, the rest of us, I think. Um, yeah, it's, it's not easy for anybody, but uh, yeah, we're fine. We're fine. Thanks. Yeah. Do you know what? That's such a hard question to ask at the moment because your initial response is always, yeah, I'm good, thank you. And then you're like, oh, actually, no, I'm not great. It's the middle of a global pandemic. So actually, no, not so brilliant. Well, all I'd say is we're, we're lucky to have our own house, which is warm, just the two of us here. And we've got a lovely garden. So you can't complain. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And look, there's there's loads that we want to get through yeah. um, and have a chat about today. But one of your really interesting roles is actually... Um, you're Shadow Minister for Peace and Disarmament, aren't you? And that's been wow. since 2016. And I'm really, really interested in this job because it feels quite unique. Can you kind of tell us a bit about of course. I guess, what it is to begin with? Well, I can. I mean, it is unique in that there is no Minister for Peace and Disarmament. And the post was created in October 2016 by our former Labour Party leader, Jeremy Corbyn. Um but it actually, it's, it's a really important idea. Many countries in the world, especially advanced industrial countries, do have this position in government. Now, I'm in the odd and unique situation that I don't actually shadow an individual minister. I shadow a number of ministers. 
And until April of last year, I also had responsibility for certain defense-related issues and uh, for the Middle East and North Africa. Now, thankfully, those extra responsibilities have been uh, changed and moved to somebody else. And so I just concentrate on uh, multilateral arms control, international disarmament agreements, uh, and, and of course, many places where a peace agreement is actually in place, such as Colombia and Cyprus. So it, it's much more focused now, which is a really good thing. Although it's focused, that's a massive brief, though, isn't it? Kind of in terms of, I don't know, weight on your shoulders. There must be a lot of different kind of fronts that you have to tackle that on, I imagine. Uh, yes, absolutely. And that's why, you know, I need the help of my excellent staff, um, because uh, I, I don't think any one individual can do this. Um, I was recently on a call with uh, the University of Bradford, um, mm. their Peace Society, and um, what was great was that there were people on that course from all over the world. And so the areas I was talking about, Yemen, for example, there was a, a young woman from, from Yemen who was able to talk from personal experience. Wow. So it, it's a huge brief. Um, it's just as important today, I think, is disarmament as it was in the depths of the Cold War. And although we, you know, we do face new challenges, the world has changed substantially. But, um, you know, coronavirus is an invisible enemy. So it's never been clearer to me that the world needs fresh multilateral disarmament programmes and the UK should be at the forefront of that, I think. I'm glad you said that because I guess one of the questions that I had learning about this role is, you know, especially the peace kind of aspect of it. We know there's not peace around the world, but, you know, we're not at war. Is that a, a narrow, narrow minded way of viewing it, maybe? Well, I, you know, I think so. I mean, a lot, a lot of people, quite understandably, especially at the moment, are quite inward looking. But it seems to me that we should be more concerned, for example, about what's happening in Libya. Now, Libya, most people you know, don't know where it is, uh, have a, only the vaguest idea that maybe uh, Colonel Gaddafi was once in charge and they've got a lot of oil and it's a lot of desert and the British used to run the place during the war. But it's much more complicated than that. What happens in Libya matters to us, not just because of the oil supply, mm -hmm. but because of the number of refugees that a country with almost no government, the state's been hollowed out there, um, those refugees crossing the Mediterranean into Italy and eventually making their way towards us in the United Kingdom, that matters to us on a very selfish personal level, never mind the humanitarian cost to the individuals whose lives are being destroyed by the appalling civil war that's going on there and by other countries interfering. So I think it, it's easy to actually bury your head in the sand but if you do, you forget about the way this country is affected by what happens worldwide. And, of course, our humanitarian desire to see people living in peace, because it benefits everybody for the world to be at peace and for fewer weapons to be produced and used. I'm not saying we don't produce them for our own defence. We, we must. But mm. actually to sell them to rogue states or those states that then use them to prosecute wars isn't in anybody's interest. And that's why I think we do need a peace and disarmament minister. Do you know, I find that so interesting in the context that we, you know, have, I, I, don't, I don't want to get um, too much to Brexit because we could be here for hours, but in the, in the, <laughs> in the sense that, you know, we're, we've left the EU and uh, the government is going towards this kind of global Britain type approach. It seems to me more than ever that we should be interested in kind of having a stance on, on these kind of events. Do you, do you see the way that the country is going as being 
you know, this role becoming more important as well. Yes, absolutely. I think, you know, we have, we have so many great advantages in this country. Now, obviously, I think most people know I'd much rather we hadn't left the EU, what we did. I accept the democratic mandate there. I mean, my constituents didn't vote for it. Doesn't matter. We've left. We've gone. So yes. let's find this new role for ourselves. Worldwide, the United Kingdom and the British military, for example, are hugely respected. And our international development programs in the past were well run, not corrupt, uh, delivered what they said they were going to deliver and were very generous. Now, that's mm -hmm. been cut back a little bit because of the economic uh, issues arising out of the pandemic. But nonetheless, uh, we are well respected. British armed forces, for example, are respected as being very humanitarian in their approach. Well, one, one diplomat once said to me, you know, the Americans train their uh, military personnel uh, to, to be soldiers, uh, to fight wars, um, and Britain trains its soldiers to care about people and mm -hmm. care about those whose countries they happen to be in. So we can do a great humanitarian job. We are well known for being well-trained and not being corrupt or corruptible. I think that's really important. The other thing, of course, is that English is almost a universal language now. So yes. many people speak English and want to speak English. And interestingly, a lot of the Francophone countries in West Africa, in North Africa, which used to be rigidly either speaking Arabic or their local language and French, are now learning English. Mm. And even the French Foreign Ministry, which I first visited when I became an MP in 97, and I do speak fluent French, um, would never speak to you in English in 97. Now all the diplomats learn English as well. And when I go to the French embassy or I meet uh, French diplomats in London, um, they won't talk to me in French, even though they know my French is good, because they want to talk in English, uh, because it's a universal language, and they understand that. Yeah. Um, and so, so we've got a lot going for us. The other thing is our rule of law, our legal system is well-respected worldwide. And of course, we've had an effect on countries like India and former colonial uh, countries in Africa, uh, where people are familiar with the British system. So I think there's a lot going for us. We could do so much good in the world and the fact we're one of the permanent five members of the Security Council of the United Nations gives us a reach far beyond our size uh, and our economic consequence. So there's a lot of reasons why Global Britain is a very good idea if it's done right. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure you'll be kind of at the forefront checking those uh, those things over. I think one of the points that I want to pick up on what you said there is kind of um, America, to be honest, and there's got to be some massive changes now, right, in, you know, Joe Biden becoming uh, the new president. And I, I know I was reporting on the inauguration last week and there's a statement out of out of um, Russia saying, you know, they're welcoming the kind of moves to, um, you know, go against the expiration of the Strategic Arms um, Production Treaty. And yeah. how, I guess, I'm interested in your thoughts on how the new president and his new approach might affect the stability of peace world over? Because it's been a rough few years, hasn't it, under Donald Trump? Well, it, it has. I mean, uh, Donald Trump withdrew from so many international treaties, mm. really put, piled shame on the United States. It's always tried to be a peacemaker and an international player and a very important uh, player in terms of leadership. Um, I'm very hopeful that President Biden, who, by the way, I met um, some years ago now when he was chair of the Senate um, Foreign Relations Committee. And oh, we, used go, we used to go and visit. We met him on three occasions, actually, between <laughs> 2009 and 
2005, I think, in 2008, or maybe after 2008, I can't remember. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, as a member of parliament, I, I had several conversations with him. Um, I, I think that he is an internationalist. I know he's an internationalist. And I know he's determined, for example, you mentioned uh, the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, which expires on February the 5th. So really in, 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 in just over a week's time, there is the opportunity to renew that treaty for five years. Mm. I hope and pray that he will take that opportunity. It's a treaty between Russia and the United States. And in that, that five-year period, they could negotiate a far, far better treaty, which will see the reduction in these horrific strategic weapons. That's one side of it. The other is the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. This is a, a, a treaty... That, that limits the, uh, in fact, uh, bans effectively the testing of nuclear weapons. Now, you can't develop nuclear weapons if you can't test them. Mm. The treaty was um, agreed by the UN many years ago, but it's never passed into international law because it hasn't got enough uh, countries ratifying it, including, of course, the US and China. The British mm-hmm. government ratified it whilst Labour was in power, and that had uh, support from all sides of the House. Uh, there is a comprehensive test ban treaty organization based in Vienna, uh, which is in- incredibly uh, effective, but of course, it can't be fully effective without it becoming an article of international law. Now, if if President Biden is minded to um, approve, to sign and ratify this treaty, which is not impossible and actually quite likely, I think, in the next four years, Hmm. then once that's done, China will follow immediately. And once China follows, there'll be countries like Egypt and other smaller countries in the world that will also ratify it and it will become an article of international law. That will have a profound effect. Most people have never heard of it, but it'll have a profound effect on the proliferation of nuclear weapons worldwide and the reversal of that, the reduction of nuclear weapons and nuclear warheads, which will only serve to make the world a safer place. And I suppose that goes back to what you were saying a minute ago, you know, about how we might not be in the times of the Cold War anymore, but kind of these negotiations with powers such as Russia, such as China, are so key, aren't they, to how how we kind of, you know, act on the world stage. uh, Are they the two kind of main blocks, I suppose, that you look at in this work? Or are there others emerging that we should be aware of as well? Well, I mean, in terms of of nuclear weapons, Mm -hmm. uh, the United States and Russia hold, I think, more than 80% of all the nuclear warheads in the world. Mm -hmm. Now, they have reduced since the end of the Cold War, but but not by enough. Mm -hmm. Uh, Great Britain, the United Kingdom and France and China actually hold very few, especially the UK and France, very, very few warheads between. It's still enough to destroy uh, all of all of life on Earth, but uh, but a, a tiny fraction of those that exist. So anything we can do to reduce that number is is very beneficial to all of us. I think China, I, you know, obviously it has huge ambitions. It's a growing economy. It will soon, in the next twenty years, overtake the United States as the largest economy on Earth. Um, and I think Americans are very worried about that, and they want to try and repatriate as much of their manufacturing as they as they can and and retain their dominance. But, you know, these things change over the years, over the decades and over the centuries. It's bound to happen. Are there any other areas? Well, I think we need to we, we should never write off Africa. Uh, Africa has its own problems, but there are mm. countries uh, that are growing in power and, uh, and, and economic muscle. South Africa, obviously Nigeria, uh, even Ethiopia is doing incredibly well at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, let's not forget Brazil. I mean, I was in Brazil a few years ago and that is a massive nation that's mm. developing incredibly fast. Uh, now, I hope it's not at the expense of the rainforests, uh, 
Um, but uh, as in terms of its human resources, in terms of its natural uh, mineral uh, wealth and its natural resources, it is. I think Brazil will be a, a big player in the decades to come, a very big player. And if South Africa can get on top of corruption and the other problems that have dogged it, it's by far the largest economy in Africa. And of course, Nigeria, likewise, uh, has huge oil reserves. So we should never write off these countries. And then we forget, don't we, that some of those nations in the on the uh, Pacific Rim, on the, the, the um, Asia-Pacific region, mm-hmm. um, will also be growing. Indonesia, Malaysia, huge resources there, massive nations. Uh, Vietnam has done extremely well since the uh, 1980s. So there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of countries that are, that are really tagging, saying, listen to us, you know, we're here and we're, not, we're, we're here to stay. We're not going away on the world stage. Mm-hmm. And, and I suppose, really, it's about monitoring how that how that kind of comes about and how that uh, jostling plays out. And as it, you mentioned it at the start, but I suppose the way that people rebuild after coronavirus is going to have a big impact here. And I know we're going to talk about coronavirus in a minute. Is is it, I mean, don't let me put words in your mouth, but is it the message that, you know, we can't forget about the kind of peace and disarmament agenda that we should be focusing on just because of coronavirus? Oh, oh, no, we certainly can't. And, and you know, coronavirus, coronavirus and the pandemic is going to damage economies all over the world, especially some of the poorest economies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's shocking in a way that it has taken the headlines away from the, the, the terrible and terrifying events that are happening, for example, in Yemen at the moment, yes. where uh, Saudi Arabia is continuously and, and indiscriminately bombing civilians in Yemen. And the Houthi rebels are pretty well as vicious, but they're not as well resourced and armed as the Saudis. But here's the horrifying thing. We supply the Saudis with most of their weaponry. Now, it's one thing to sell weapons from state to state, but it's something altogether different if the state you're selling to uses those weapons to prosecute a war like this. And I think, you know, my party's policy is to cease arms sales to Saudi Arabia immediately. Uh, until we've had a proper inquiry by the United Nations as to how these weapons are being used to prosecute this war. I mean, nobody wants the Houthis to take over Yemen. They're a pretty vile bunch, frankly. But the way this is being prosecuted is 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 horrifying, and we don't see it on the news anymore. So I think, you know, one of the things we need to do, for example, is to ensure that our arms export uh, regime, our arms export controls, are properly accountable to the House of Commons. Mm-hmm. That's why I've written to the leader of the House, Jacob Rees-Mogg, about it. Um, he's refused to acknowledge that the government can change that committee mm-hmm. to allow it to actually work uh, far, far more effectively to ask those that are buying the arms why they need to buy them, those that are selling and exporting, you know, should we actually sell them or not? And can you guarantee they won't be used to prosecute rogue wars like the one in Yemen? So. You know, our weapons are our responsibility. And I think it's time that the government of this country stepped up to make sure sure that Britain plays its part in keeping the world safe. It's something we can do realistically, and we should not forget about it during the coronavirus pandemic. You're quite right. And I think um, maybe you think this is a bit of a stretch here, but I've been doing a lot of reporting recently on... um, kind of how how new trade deals are going to be broken and things like that. And I know there's a call from some parliamentarians that Parliament should be able to cast its eye over and approve trade details on things like um, if it, you know, 
we had all the genocide stuff yeah. uh, last week, for example, didn't yes. we? And I, and I wonder if it's a similar message of, you know, we've taken back control. That was what the message was during Brexit, wasn't it? So really, it should be Parliament that has control <laughs> over this kind of stuff. Well, I'm, I'm laughing slightly because there's a piece in one of the papers this morning, either the Times or the Guardian, mm-hmm. which, which slightly sarcastically says um, Boris Johnson uh, insisted that leaving the EU would mean taking back control. What he didn't mean was that Parliament should actually take control from him. But of course, that's exactly what it means. We elect our members of Parliament. We have a democratic system. It's not perfect. It has flaws. It could be reformed. But it's democratic nonetheless. We're accountable to our electorates. And that's really important. So we are the ones, really, who should hold our government to account. And if you're saying that you don't want unelected bureaucrats in Brussels, neither do we want unelected bureaucrats in the United Kingdom, or dare I say, unelected members of government who happen to be MPs, but think that because they've got a majority, they can do what what they like without actually the say-so of Parliament. No, Parliament should have a say. And uh, whoever's in control of Parliament, they should have the final say in these things. And they should be able to dictate whether a country should have a trade deal with us, in spite of its horrific human rights record, as we've seen with the Uyghur people in China. And there are many other examples, I'm afraid, sadly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, look, we're going to take a bit of a uh, a bit of a turn and uh, speak about coronavirus a bit yeah. because we can't avoid it, unfortunately. No. Um, you know, we, uh, we've had a lot of reporting over the last few days, particularly on supply. We know that supply of vaccinations is a massive problem across the country. Yeah. And um, as I understand, there's some concern about the number that Yorkshire is getting. Now, I know MPs have had some briefings on this. What, what, have, what have you been told about it so far? Well, there was a slight uh, contradiction. We had a, a private briefing with uh, Nadim Zahawi, the uh, vaccine mm. minister, who, by the way, although he's a different party to mine, I know him quite well. And I think he's mm. an extraordinarily competent and, and, and good, good man in many ways. He's the mm. ideal choice for this particular uh, role. And he's doing his very best. But the questions uh, that were raised amongst Yorkshire uh, MPs of all parties were, look, we're doing well in Yorkshire. In fact, we're doing better than the rest of the country, apart from Cornwall, I believe. Yes. And yet, um, we're being told that you're doing too well and the rest of the country needs to catch up. So we're going to slow down your um, your your stock and your supply of the vaccines. Mm. Now, uh, Nadim, to his credit, said, no, that's not the case. What we're trying to do is increase the supply to other parts of the country so that they're able to catch up with Yorkshire. We're not going to halve the number or reduce the number coming to Yorkshire, but we're getting contradictory reports here. Now, yes. Zahawi was very clear that's not the case, and yet other people who speak for the government said, well, actually, it is the case. So which one is it? And this has been typical, I'm afraid, of this government throughout the pandemic. On the one hand, this is being said. On the other hand, that's being said. On the one hand, you should do this. And then a week later, you know, the schools will not close. And then a week later, they're closing. There will not be another lockdown. Then a week later, there's a lockdown. It's They should make their minds up. And one of the, the countries that have been most successful in stemming the tide of infections and sadly the deaths that result from those infections have been those that have had a very clear line a very clear set of ideas and a very clear set of policies to deal with this, and they've stuck to it. And it's been informed by the science and by the, um, uh, by the, uh, the, 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 the academics and the people who advise those governments. And I'm thinking, obviously, of New Zealand. And people, before anybody says to you, well, New Zealand, you know, is this a tiny country, which it is. And, of course, no one lives there and it's all everybody, you know, the density of population is far lower than the UK. No, it isn't, actually. Their cities are, are denser than ours in some uh, in some respects, 
The Japanese as well, one of the densest populated countries on earth. They haven't suffered the way we have. Uh, they haven't been as good as New Zealand, but they've not been too bad. Korea, Taiwan is a very good example. Very dense uh, housing in Taipei. I've been there. And yet uh, the, the Taiwanese have done incredibly well during this pandemic in stemming the tide of infections and therefore the effect on their health systems. So it can be done, but you've got to be consistent. This government hasn't been consistent, I'm afraid. I think you're completely right. And I think the massive problem, actually, um, in my opinion, it's not usually my job to give opinions, but I do have some sometimes, um, is it's the transparency and the mixed messages, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, we know that Yorkshire's doing great and that's brilliant. But when you've got the NHS saying, yes, things are being diverted. And then, like you say, you've got the vaccines minister saying, no, they're not. But then the NHS says again on the radio that they are. And then the NHS says that, sends out a statement to say, no, they're not. I think that's when people start to get frustrated yeah. and concerned, really. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had an example last week uh, on Friday, actually. A GP in my constituency rang me really frustrated. He said they're getting 975 doses of the Pfizer vaccine on Monday morning at the surgery that serves the Chapeltown area. Mm. And they're going to get a further 975 on Friday. Now, his argument was um, that either they should, uh, either the, those vaccines, they're hoping that by Friday they will have vaccinated everybody that within the category that's currently being vaccinated, uh, that needs it. But his argument was twofold. One, he said the um, people over 70 in Chapeltown and, and some of the poorer districts of, of Leeds have got greater health needs than the over 80s in some of the better off areas like Old Woodley, for example. And I think yeah. there's a lot, of, a lot of empirical evidence to suggest that's absolutely right. So instead of inviting the over 80s to come from Old Woodley into Woodhouse or Chapeltown, wouldn't it be more sensible to send those vaccination, uh, those doses up to Alwoodley, or to say that the next category down within that poorer area can receive the vaccine at the same time as the older categories in the better off areas, because the health outcomes are very, very different and the health needs are very, very different. I think there's a there's a lot of you know a lot of sense in that argument, frankly. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, the, the, um, one of the main issues for me, I think, is that at the end of the day, the supply is constrained, it is limited, there is a, um, you know, a finite pot. So if yeah. you are going to target and prioritise some areas by very, by the very kind of, you know, statement of itself, other areas will have to lose some supply, yeah. because there's only so yeah. much of it there. Yes, no, I think that's absolutely right. But, but then to deny that, I think, is flying in the face of, of logic and reality. Um, so which one is it? You know, we don't want to be told two opposite and competing things. They've got to make their minds up. OK, we are stopping the supply to Yorkshire because we want everywhere else to catch up. Um, OK, let tell us that's the case. I mean, we won't be happy about it, but tell us. Yeah, don't pretend it's not happening. I quite agree. Um, also on vaccinations, I, I think you mentioned one of the areas that we're going to concentrate on um, there. I know there's uh, definitely concern in uh, take up in some BAME communities. And I believe that's something you've been doing a bit of work on, is it not? Yes, it is. I mean, I've been working um, with uh, leaders in the black community, especially our councillors, Abigail Marshall and uh, Amber Hale Marshall Katong and Angela Wenham, who's a rounding mm -hmm. councillor. Um, and, and uh, you know, I'm concerned that uh, reports of 72%, 72% of the black community are unlikely to want to have the vaccine. I think that's really worrying. That's massive. Wow. Yeah. Um, so we're trying to ensure that, that, that our brilliant NHS staff um, are able to deploy uh, in those areas. 
um, you know, a vaccine that's been approved, rigorously approved, by the fully independent MHRA, and that these vaccines are completely safe. Now, I've recorded a, a small video for um, uh, to go around on the social media together with Councillor Abigail Marshall-Caton um, mm -hmm. to persuade people uh, from the black community that these vaccines are safe and it actually will not only benefit them and their families, but the whole community, the whole city and the whole country uh, if, they are, uh, if they agree to have the vaccine. And, you know, there's some of the disinformation that's going around is really shocking, mm -hmm. you know, that it will, uh, it will affect your DNA, it will actually alter your DNA. That's nonsense. Yeah, you know, it will, it, it, the, 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 the Pfizer vaccine is a, is a leading uh, bit of science and technology in that it actually affects the DNA of the virus, but it will not affect your human DNA. And there are other nonsensical things, you know, we, we've all heard the the ludicrous stories about the tracker devices that are hidden within the vaccines, that's obviously completely stupid. Um, but, but other things like, you know, it will affect your, your sexual performance or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it's, just, it's just a nonsense. There's no evidence whatsoever uh, that these things would happen. Um, others concerned, you know, that you'd have a, a, an allergic reaction to it and it would um, send you into anaphylactic shock. Again, very, very, very unlikely. One or two people who might be uh, subject to, uh, susceptible to those things uh, might want to be careful but you know two people I think have been affected and they both had they both carried the you know the the um the pen that would they could in immediately um inject themselves with to ensure that uh, the effects were counted so let's let's get everybody let's get everybody vaccinated and black people should not be frightened absolutely I think some of some of the other um conspiracy theories around have been you know that maybe the vaccine isn't halal and um you know yeah. imams across the country have come out and said you know that's not the case we really support uh, the muslim community having the vaccine and there's there's all kinds of crazy yeah. conspiracies like you say and i think i do think the government is aware of this they've launched quite yeah. a big kind of uh, campaign against this information but you know we were talking about health inequalities earlier of course yeah. we know that covid has hit bayam communities massively that it yeah. you know it has a really detrimental effect so it's more important than than ever yeah. and as we roll these vaccines out i think not only are we going to have to focus on that but also the kind of priority groups that come next because of course yeah. as we approach the yes. february 15th it yeah. is target uh we need to know where we need to go next and people yeah. are discussing all kinds of groups whether it's kind of teachers supermarket workers police yeah. officers have you been working on things with supermarkets, I believe? Because they're yeah. on the front line, aren't they? Yes, I have. I mean, uh, mainly over social distancing. I, I mean, I do think that, you know, supermarket staff are our, part of our frontline staff because, mm. let's face it, which, which one of us listening to this uh, does not go to a supermarket? I mean, most some older people or some more vulnerable people might try and get online deliveries. But have you tried to get one recently? We tried we tried oh, the other day. Couldn't get a slot at all. And frankly, I quite like shopping. So, you know, I, I'll <laughs> happily go to my local supermarket. I won't name the particular one. But um, and, and so th those workers are frontline workers because without them, we could not do our shopping. And if we can't do our shopping, we can't feed ourselves. And that would yeah. be a disaster. So uh, I am concerned that um, that supermarkets who are now, thank goodness, enforcing the rules on social distancing and mask wearing more robustly uh, are doing the right thing. But the problem is you get a few rogue individuals uh, who refuse to wear a mask because it's their human right not to, of course. Um, and 
and uh, supermarket staff are vulnerable. If they try to enforce it, they, they become the subject to very aggressive behaviour. So, you know, I, I hope that uh, every, every major supermarket in Leeds will ensure that they have a security guard on duty in every store at all times when they're open. Because if they don't, then other staff are put at jeopardy. And let's face it, they're making a lot of money. Um, at, they're making profits like they'd never dreamed of. Mm -hmm. And they can afford to employ security guards so that we're all safe. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right about the profits as well, because I don't know about um, you, but because uh, going to the supermarket is the only thing you can do at the moment, I'm finding I'm treating myself a little bit more often. <laughs> well, 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 that and the DIY store. But look, so I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm working with the trade union, Usdor, one of the best unions around, actually, the shop workers union, to ensure that you know, its members have also got a say on how they're kept safe, because no one should have to face that kind of abuse or aggression. It's a very, at work, it's a very small number of people that behave in that way but they can have a disproportionate effect on staff morale and on staff safety. So it, it's something I'm really concerned about. And we've actually got to ensure that the supermarkets do their bit. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, maybe it's been a fascinating chat today. We've covered a load of ground. And I'd love to have you on again if yep. you fancy coming back and giving us an update on what you're doing another time. You up for it? Yeah, I'm absolutely up for it. There's lots of parts of the world we haven't even talked about. So uh, <laughs> uh, never, never mind what's happening here. I've got some great ideas about uh, about housing you might want to know, about social housing. Uh, I do so, want to know about that. Uh, yes, let's pick that up next time for sure. Well, that's something that could transform our society, actually, and transform our environment as well. So tune in next time. You're going to be sorry for that. You won't get me off no, the phone now. No, you, won't, you won't get me shutting up about housing, I'll tell you. We'll speak soon. Thank lovely, you. Lovely, lovely to speak to you. Bye for now. So thank you for listening to Pods in Country this week. Yeah, it's been really great to uh, have you for another episode. And look, we would really love it if you could take the time to uh, leave us a review to subscribe to tell your friends you can find us wherever you usually find your podcasts whether that's iTunes or Google Podcasts or Spotify because it it really helps to um, boost us in the charts thank you Jerry and thank you for your time this week and we'll, we'll join you for another episode of uh, Yorkshire Politics next week so see you around The Masters on Sky Sports, now half price for six months. Witness all four unmissable days live from Augusta. It's one of the grand theatres of the sporting world. Oh, what a shot! You couldn't script this for a Hollywood movie. The best place to watch all four days of the Masters live. To join or upgrade and get Sky Sports half price for six months, search Sky Sports Golf. New sports customers only. Standard pricing applies after six months. Further terms apply.